The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today is Veterans Day, November 11th, 2018. It's an unusual, very special Veterans Day as well because it's the 100th anniversary of the end of the Great War, the war to end all wars, World War I. It will be remembered briefly as well for the weekend draft dodger President Trump wouldn't visit a French cemetery for American soldiers killed in that war because it happened to be raining. Anyway, on a happier note, our return guest today is the Reverend Peter Panagore, who had an amazing near-death experience in 1980. Peter nearly froze to death, clinging to a 10-inch wide ledge during a descent from an ice climb in Alberta, Canada. If you'd like to hear that story, please go to our Past Shows button and scan back to our show of March 31st, 2014. A subsequent show from October 26th, uh, 2015, was recorded after the publication of Peter's book about that experience. Its title is Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death is Just the Beginning. Peter, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi, Lee. Good to hear your voice. Uh, Good to hear yours. We had a good time together out in uh, Seattle with a whole bunch of near-death experiencers. And uh, I would encourage anyone listening who has not been to an IONS conference to attend one because they're, they're just terrific. Peter, three years ago, you and I were on a panel at the annual IONS conference, and you expressed then the same thought you'd mentioned on our 2014 show, that your experience left you with a desire to die and be with God. Now, these days, more than 20 American veterans commit suicide every day, many from the effects of PTSD from their war experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, since we did our last show, you experienced another NDE in which you decided again not to die. And on this Veterans Day, I would I would love it if you would describe your heart attack NDE and why you decided to come back and how you would address the subject if you were talking to a vet contemplating suicide himself. Wow. Um, sure. <laughs> I can do that. That's a big ex- uh, <laughs> a big assignment for a half hour show. <laughs> uh, well, um, well, then I'll get right to it, Lee, and interrupt me at any point, okay? Because sure. uh, you know I was a preacher, and once I start, I I, I need to be interrupted to stop. <laughs> That's quite all right. <laughs> um, so, so in 2015, just as my book was being released, I was uh, pretty fit. I'd been running 5K, and on this particular Friday, I ran a, a 5K trail run. Uh, rather, it was a yeah, it was a Friday, and then the next morning I was going to get up and go sailing, and the fog rolled in, and instead, I decided to go to my yoga class, uh, but I was late, and it was full because it was summertime, and so the teacher, who's a friend of mine, let me set up in the literally in the door jam, you know, mm-hmm. like over the door in the threshold, and um to the ante room and, and and she liked to run it hot and it got really hot and I started getting really really hot and I decided ah oh, this is really hot it's a summer August day 
my place is packed. I, I decided just to lie down on my back in what they call Shavasana and just lie there for a couple of minutes and try to cool down. I'm known for getting hot in yoga. Like everybody, all my friends who do yoga, they're like, they know not to, not to sit up near me because I fling sweat. And <laughs> I, but I, I thought to myself, I'm, I'm too hot for the amount of time I've been doing yoga that day. And I tried to sit up and I thought, oh, there's something wrong here. And I decided maybe I needed air. So I went outside. It was very, it's like a one room schoolhouse kind of set up with a, a shower and an ante room and a little hallway and the door to the outside. And yes. I went outside and I, and I lay down in the grass and I thought, wow, it's good. This feels good, but I'm not, my heart's hurting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I decided I was having a heart attack. And I decided that because I'd been, um, an ambulance attendant, a licensed ambulance attendant for some years before and had been trained to recognize the symptoms. And, and I knew that my dad had had one at 56 and I knew that my sister had died at 56 and I was 56. And so I tried to sit up to get myself to my car to get to the urgent care, but I couldn't sit up. And so I just lay there. And eventually the teacher came outside looking for me, and she said, are you okay? And I said, no, Romy, I'm having a heart attack. And she said, no, you can't be having a heart attack. Look at you. And I was like, no, Romy, I'm having a heart attack. Go get my friends uh, to drive me to the urgent care. She said, should I call the ambulance? I said, there's not enough time this, because the ambulance was too far away, So, and we weren't far away. So I got a friend, and we get over to the urgent care, and we called ahead and told them I was having a heart attack. And they got me inside, and I was lying on the gurney, and they checked me out, and I had a hundred percent blockage in my oh. widowmaker, which is where my what killed my sister and would have killed my dad, yes. and probably killed my grandfather on on my first birthday. But that's another story. Mm-hmm. And so um, they shot me up with a decoagulant that gave me a three percent trickle through, and offered me morphine. And I can't take opiates because they make me sick, vomiting sick. So oh. I refused and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll. I'll use meditation, which I've been training in for 40 years, um, to control my pain as best I can. But if you give me morphine, I'm going to be vomiting in the back of the ambulance and having a heart attack. Yeah, not good. Not good. And, yeah. and it's an hour and a half drive in the summertime to the catheterization lab from where I live. And and it's, it, it's you know, vacation land, which is where we live. Lee and I both live in Maine. <laughs> yes. <we> don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so... As they loaded me on the gurney, my wife and my son showed up, and um, my wife knew that I'd been praying for my own death every day since the day I came back the first time. Mm. And so as I got wheeled away, I looked at her and I winked at her, like, hey, honey, uh, I'll see you on the other side. Mm. And my son, though, came up to me and he squeezed my hands and he came in really close and he looked me in the eye and said, I love you, dad. And off I went. I came to find out later that the doctor had told him to say goodbye to me because I was likely going to die on the long ride to the hospital. And I was going to, and as a result of incurring uh, permanent damage to my heart. And so on the way, I'm in the back of the ambulance and my eyes are shut and I'm meditating the whole way, focusing on my pain with my mind and separating myself from my pain. It doesn't kill the pain. It just separates yourself from it. And, um, and I heard the paramedic call into the catheterization lab or the hospital and she calls ahead and says, we're losing 
mumbled this. She said a bunch of other words too. And uh, I opened my eyes and I looked at her and she looked down at me. She was, it was surprised. And, and then she went back to her serious face and I closed my eyes and I went back to my meditation as, as they, as, uh, news came back over the radio to do something. And as, as in those few seconds, as I closed my eyes, I saw inside me the angel of death, the same angel of death, which is a personification and a metaphor. It's not a being I could possibly describe, although it's intelligent and capable. Um, and it communicated to me telepathically the first time. And this time, instead of plucking me away and ripping me uh, out of my body, against my will this time it welcomed me home come home come home using my my soul name that i can't say because it's unpronounceable mm-hmm. and um i went and as i went i was lifted out of myself by this being that filled my entire horizon and then carried me i thought to myself well this has taken a while i should think about this for a minute so i decided to go back into my meditation for a second because I thought of my son and saying yes. I love you and so I started thinking about Andy and and I started thinking about my granddaughter who had just been born and my daughter who is now a single mom who is on you know here's this veterans day he he was a smart young fellow who dropped out of college and joined the marines and got promoted and went off to war and came back with what they're calling um, not just post-traumatic stress disorder, but moral injury. And he was a broken man, and after a couple of three years of marriage, things were terrible in the marriage. Um, no, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is a terrible thing for everybody. Yes. And so eventually she left, and but that leaving just happened. And now she was homeless. She had a college degree, but hadn't worked in three years. And because um, he'd been moving around, you know, following the Marines and and then after the Marines. And so now my kid was going to be homeless with her with my granddaughter. And I thought, I can't I can't leave now. They, they, they need me to stay here. And so I, I, I turned my eye back toward the angel of death who had receded, but was still hanging out. And the angel came fast down toward me, welcoming me. Come home, come home. It's time to come home. And I just turned my eye away and I went back to my meditation and I stayed and I stayed for the same reason that I came back the first time. And that's because of love. I, I know that the length of my life is the wink of my eye because I saw that on the other side and that I can endure here in this world. This, this what feels like to me a two dimensional flat world of, of uh, a black and white that while I need to for as long as I have to. And so I stayed and, um, and now, you know, then the result was, uh, our daughter and granddaughter moved into our house, um, and lived with us for 18 months as she recovered herself and started graduate school and got a job. And they moved out in May of this year. And, um, we've been caring for the, our granddaughter four nights a week, four evenings a week for a couple hours. Monday to Thursday, and, I, and we just had her for four days over the weekend. So, I, you know, I'm, I, I came back for love the first time, and I stuck around the second time. And I can say now that I don't pray for death every day. I still am waiting for my time to go. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side is so much better than here, but I've dealt a lot with suicide in my career as a pastor. And 
most recently, uh, a young man in our community, a friend of my son, and a kid I coached in Little League. Um, uh, he walked away from his house and vanished for a few days, and eventually he was found with a bullet hole and in his head. And the, the suffering that he was enduring, nobody knew. Everyone was surprised. But the suffering that was given to the entire community, his mom and his dad and his, his fiance and her kid and, and you know, hundreds of people, his suffering rippled through everyone. And I, I, I've known the family my whole, my whole time I've been living where I live, which is close to 25 years now. And I know that the darkness of despair, I've had that darkness myself. Um, I don't speak of it academically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know the pain that leaving can cause others. And I, I learned something on the other side about giving pain, and at least for me, that all the pain that I ever gave away in my life, intentionally or unintentionally, I had to face when I was dead from the point of view of those to whom I gave it. And it turned out that I'd given it to myself. And, and so I, I mean, I, I, and, and what I, I know also that terminally ill patients who I know a woman, um, she had ALS and she went through the stages of ALS. And in the end, she chose to die before she suffocated. And I've seen such things before, and I, un- I totally understand this. I also understand enough about despair to know why you want to go. The choice to stay is for the sake of, of love for me. I, ch- I chose to stay for love. I chose every day not to take my own life. And, and I know people don't want to hear me say that because uh, it's scary to them, but to me it's not running away from here. It's running to something where, the, where love and joy and wholeness and blessing and beauty, truth, knowledge, oneness is the realm of existence. But I can endure here for the sake of love, and that's what I have to say to all the vets. And I know that the percentage is high, is that, is that the, the suffering you feel inside is the is the dark gift you leave behind if you choose to take your life. And that doesn't make it any easier to stay. Mm. I, I understand that. And, and I, I, I met this guy, a vet, a two-tour guy from Vietnam. And he, he's a Native American. He lives in South Dakota. And he's a spiritual elder out there. And he flew east to meet me. And I, I, won't, I won't tell that story why he came east to meet me. But, but in the midst of this, he recognized that, that, um, that I had post-traumatic stress disorder. And he, he helped me through it. But what he told me about their tribe, the Dakota, is this. He said that in his tribe, um, when someone takes their life, even though nobody wants them to, People accept it as the end of the of that life stream. They, they they love that person. They go on loving them. They they try to move away from um, anger because they because of love. 
I'm not sure if I'm saying that clearly or not, Lee, because it's a it's an outside culture to me. But mm-hmm. but I'm going to stop right now. Okay. Leave it there for a moment. Peter, do you think that despair is the uh, natural order of things in this world? I think the Buddha was right, and that all life is suffering. And and people are like, no, I'm having a great time. Well, yeah, you are having a great time, but doesn't your big toe hurt, you know, where you stubbed it? That's a little mm-hmm. thing, you know? That's a little tiny thing. But the whole place is built on this combination of, of, of suffering and love. You know, love is the operative. Uh, I, I know that they haven't founded the CERN super collider. <laughs> they haven't, like, found <laughs> the, L, the, the love article. Um, but but as you peel down into the the physics of this reality reality because god is real this reality is created by the being of oneness and love is the operation of the oneness love god is love so first and primary is the original blessing and that's that all things are love but then there's all this suffering that happens here and despair is uh, a part of suffering. It's the deepest, darkest part, I think, at least that I've ever experienced. Um, is it, I think it's a natural part of the human experience, frankly. Some folks, Christians would say, uh, and other religions would say, That's, this is God's creation, this is God's world. Others believe that it's, it's the domain of Satan, that... Uh, that the fallen angels took over and, and ruined it. I mean, how does your how does your uh, UCC point of view come out on something like that? Oh, I'm not really a UCC minister. <laughs> 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 I'm a near death experiencer who's who's studied in religion and worked in, in faith. Um, my my point of view is is what I saw on the other side is is that. Whatever mythology or metaphor you want to use to describe what the Bible calls the fall, hmm. that's the, the operative here. We're in, in a place that is not perfection. It's not bad. It's not a bad world. And when I say world, I don't mean Earth and our solar system or our galaxy. I mean all of the galaxies, all of them, the, hmm. the billions and billions and billions of them, and all of the planets in them, the whole shebang from beginning to end. From from uh, cre- uh, creation out of nothing in the Big Bang to the expanding edge into what we have no idea. Um, all of it, all of it is not bad. It's beloved, and that the the nature of this world, this universe, is to, existing in this duality of love and brokenness. And if there was no brokenness, there would be no experience here, because this would be heaven purity, oneness, that only be wholeness here. And that's not what it is. And when I when I was when I was dead, I saw that all the suffering that I gave away was no greater or no lesser than anyone else's. And that and that God forgave me because God already knew this about me and it was the natural order of existence and our plane of existence. It's not a blameworthy thing. Um, that said I still keep my eye on the light as much as I can. Why, why do you suppose we opt for experience, and why do you suppose, if there's any reality to reincarnation, that people would opt to come back and do it again? Well, those are really big questions that I weren't answered when I was on the other side. I, I saw that I, well, I'll spare what I saw and say instead that I don't want to come back. 
if I have to come back, I will, but I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to come back here. Um, and secondly, I'm not sure that I chose to come here in the first place. That was not revealed to me. Um, I try to only talk about things that I know, not what I speculate on, but I do know that the, the length of my, the, the tale of my, the long life of my soul was much greater than my life now. And that, um, I seem to, that Peter seemed to be some sort of overlay on the very end of this top of this thing that was everlasting and that there were other, uh, bifurcations through the long tail of my soul, the, the unity of the oneness of my soul that seemed to might have been or are other experiences of reality. Um, what I mean by that is, is that maybe I've been reincarnated or maybe there is no time whatsoever and that all reincarnations happen at the same time because of timelessness. I don't, I don't know. Um, but if we have to come back here, it's the same rule as it's been now, which is love. If it, it, love is the treasure of the heart. And if it, if you want to end the cycle of reincarnation, love more, mm. gather love and give love away and just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Right. The bodhisattvas come back because they believe that uh, as long as there is life and suffering on earth, that people need help and they're going to be aids to them. And you've certainly in your work been an aid to a lot of people in your work as a pastor and a, a broadcaster and as a writer in your, in your um, book. Um, and yet, uh, I think when one of the early, earlier shows you did, you, you told me that you thought living was like, uh, in this world was like living in a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do we, uh, is, is the quality of the love that we express in this life cartoon-like as well? Or is there something clearer than that? It's cartoon-like in that it is filtered. But, there are some really, really high quality animations in the world. And, and love is a high quality animation. It's like people, I'll use science fiction as an example. People, they all science fiction is about made up stuff. Well, actually most science fiction is about psychology and commerce and human relationship and it's a, it's about humanity. Yes. And in the same way or a similar way, love passes through the filter of this world. It's the most pure thing that passes through it. And yet, it by passing through the filter of this world isn't as pure as it is on the other side, which is a septillion times greater than we experience here. But it's, and let me, let me explain it this way, is that um, every drop of love is like a, like a singular photon. And the, the star, uh, we call the sun, is filled with photons. And it and illuminates the whole solar system. And, and, Every single photon is exactly the same as the sun, but the sun is made up of all the photons, and a single photon is not the sun. And so the, the love that we experience here is as powerful and as strong as the oneness itself. It's just much smaller. Still the thing itself is just much, much smaller. When you... So, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Lee, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, when you... Um we're talking about your um, near-death experience in the ice climb. You went through hell, and the hell was your uh, life review. Yes. And many people who've had near-death experiences 
also experience a life review, but they don't, they don't seem to describe it in the, uh, in, in the depth of, uh, recognition of pain. I mean, they know that they cause others pain because they feel it through, uh, by experiencing others pain through themselves as if they, they were the victim in that situation. No, oh, yeah. Uh, very few. I don't think I have heard anyone other than you describe it as hell. Uh, I, I can't explain it, Lee. I don't know why that happened to me. I in my uh, in my studies, I came across Catherine of Genoa, fifteen um, hundreds, I think she was. And um, one of the things she talks about is what she calls the. Well, she had a mystical experience in which she was taken out of herself and brought into the divine presence. But in order to be into the in the divine presence of oneness. She had to pass through the divine fire of purgative love. She had to be cleansed by fire of love in order to to have all the the dross um, boiled off of her or the the chaff uh, burned from her kernel of wheat. I, both of those are, are biblical metaphors, and uh, that's the way I've come to think of it. And I, I came across Catherine in the last two years of my reading, and. Um, I think that in order to be infilled with the oneness that I experienced, I, I had no room inside me for any of myself. And when I was infilled with this oneness, the part of me that was Peter was minuscule. But the 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 ninety nine point nine nine percent of me was oneness. And in order to have that much oneness, I had to have no or very little self left. Um, and I, I can't explain it. I didn't, I don't know, I don't understand it. I just know that that's what happened to me. And that coming back here, I, I feel other people's pain. I'm, I'm, I'm empathetic. I'm an empath. And which is one of the reasons why I live where I live. Um, so that I can empathically experience the divine through nature and not empathically experience everybody's pain around me all the time. Um, I think that the idea of oneness is true. It was for me, all the pain that I caused everyone else, I caused to myself. It was, it, it wasn't because of separation. It was because of unity. You had said on one of the earlier shows that you had a dream about fire that surrounded you, but uh, you were told that you wouldn't be consumed by it. Yes. So that was a vision that you had apart from your near-death experience, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was. It was a vision that I had the year before. I was uh, once again in the wilderness. I was on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, spring break, March, backpacking in the snow um, with a buddy of mine, and I we we spent the night in a half cabin. And in that night, I had two visions, and one uh, I was taken with a vision. In this case. There's lots of kinds of visions, but in this case, I, I, in the space between waking and sleeping, I was pulled from myself and brought into a much smaller heaven, um, a more like sphere-like outer darkness that contained me. Um, and and in this sphere, two things happened. And in, in the first dream vision, I saw my hands presented in front of my body. I could see them in a cup shape and a voice that had no sound said to me, I give you this, and a, a glass vial of gold dust appeared 
being held by an index finger and a thumb with a black cap on the top, very specific. And the the next thing I knew is it was the it was without a hand, without the cap, being poured the gold dust into my hands into a huge pile. And the breath came and said, "I give you this gift now. Give it away." And I woke up, and then I, well, I was like, "What the hell was that?" And I went back to sleep again. And and the second time, I was in the same sphere of heaven, a, a tighter, darker space. But I was myself. Um, I had a physical body, uh, but but it was incorporeal at the same time. And uh, so, it, and I knew I was asleep in the cabin. And a half cabin, and and a column of fire rose up from below me and burned through me and around me and out above me, completely enveloping me in in fire. And the voice said, "You will not be consumed." And 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 frankly, Lee, that's the that's the thing that I've been most frightened of my whole life since I've come back, is that I will be consumed and there will be no Peter left. Um and. That's a, that's been a, people are like, well, why don't you get consumed? I'm like, well, cause you know, you're not in my shoes. Um, <laughs> so I've been, I've been struggling with that my whole life and I'm still, I'm better at it now. I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm to the place of letting myself be consumed as much as I can let myself be consumed. I don't know. Wow. That's uh that's quite an evolution. Hey, Peter, we're about out of time, unfortunately. Tell our audience how they can find your book, Heaven is Beautiful. Uh, PeterPanagor.love. PeterPanagor.love. It's in nine editions globally. It's at Amazon everywhere and lots of other bookstores. PeterPanagor.love. Terrific. Thank you again, Peter, for your reflections on life and death on this Veterans Day. If uh, listeners would like to... Oh, (laughs) good to have you. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our past shows, especially go back and listen to uh, the two that Peter did, um, go to our website at nderadio.org and hit the past shows button. And for information about IANS, go to their website at iands.org and be with us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. This is your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>